Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Do you remember uh, what you wanted to be whenever you grew up? You remember like whenever you were a kid and somebody would ask you that? Um, how many of you are doing that thing now as an adult? Anybody? A couple of you. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. Whenever we ask kids, uh, what are you going to do with, you know, with your life? <laughs> That's a big, big question. And, and I think whenever you turn 18, oh man, the pressure is just even bigger, right? College students, you probably understand this. Whenever I um, graduated high school, uh, I went to go enroll for college. And uh, as a freshman in college, I went and I filled out uh, the forms there as I'm enrolling. And, and one of the things that it asks you is what your major is going to be, which basically is, all right, it's time to decide. What are you going to do with your life? And so on that line, I put uh, pharmacy. <laughs> I'll be a pharmacist. They make a lot of money. Um, but the, here's the thing. I don't like science or math. And so... <laughs> That didn't really work out very well for me, which is kind of funny. I mean, college students, uh, you've probably been here as well, that uh, if you've ever been to like a high school assembly or something like that, they're always announcing what the kids are going to be, and all of them are going to be like brain surgeons or astronauts or something like that. And then they get to college and realize you've got to be really smart to do those things. And then they settle, right? Which is what happened to me. But anyway, I, um, I, I, I signed up to be a pharmacy major, and I found myself in, uh, in pre-pharmacy chemistry, which is a weed-out class, and it worked, right? It worked. And so I was in this class, and uh, I, was, I, was, I was like, there's no way I can, I can pass this class. And I remember one day after, after class, I went outside, I sat on the curb, and I called my mom. And I was like, mom, there's, there's no way. I can't, I could take this class five times. I'll never, I'll never pass it. And my mom said to me, maybe some of the most beautiful words I've ever heard in my life. She said, well, son, drop the class. And I was like, what? You can do that, right? And so, man, I like skipped over to the administration building. I dropped that class and I never looked back at, at pharmacy again. And, and, and uh, I declared a few more majors along the way before I finally settled in on an art degree, which is like the easiest of all the degrees, right? And uh, so that's, that's what I did. I did go on have a seminary degree and all that if you're like, why should I listen to this dude this morning? But anyway, a lot of pressure we put on 18-year-olds on saying, what are you going to do with your life? When really, I think the question that we're asking is, what are you going to do for the next 30 years to pay the bills? Right? What are you going to do? And, and, and so I want us to hear this morning that I do think that God has a purpose and a plan for each of our lives. Absolutely. But I guarantee you this, that God cares far more what you do with your life than what you do for a living. Right? He cares far more what you do with your life than what you do for a living. But it'd be nice if somebody would just tell us what we are to do with our life. I think sometimes we get it in our mind that there's like this hidden metaphorical red X out there in the world somewhere. And that's the plan. That's the spot that God has for us. And if we don't figure it out, if we don't read all the clues, walk through the open doors or whatnot, if we don't find it, then we're going to completely mess up God's plan for our life. And I just... I don't think that that is necessarily the case. The deal is, is, is God has actually told us exactly what he wants from our lives. He's told us. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. He's told us exactly what he wants for our life. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up with me to Matthew chapter 28. 
Matthew 28. Last week, we, we started this short two-week series um, calling a great church defined. And uh, so as we're starting this Greenbrier campus, which, by the way, I'll give you a little update on that. Last week, we launched the Greenbrier campus, and it was awesome, right? We, we had two full services. I think the total for, for last week was 376 people, which amazing, right? Just so many new families came in. And I mean, we had a stack of Connect cards that big that we followed up with all week and just incredible. So you should be, you should be proud of that. That's an extension of what, what we're doing. But as we started this campus, we thought it'd be great to, to, to dive in deep on what a great church is and what it should look like. And so whenever we say a great church, we're not saying that we're the greatest church in Conway. We've got it all figured out. Or we're not saying we're the greatest church now in Greenbrier and every, all the other churches should just look at us. That's, that's not it at all, right? We're on the same team as the other churches in town. But what we are saying is whenever we say great, we're meaning what is the, what is the most important thing? What is the greatest thing that, that the Lord wants for us as a church body? So that's what we're looking at. What's the most important thing? What's the, what's the greatest thing? And if, if you take what Josh talked about last week, the great commandment to love God and love others, and you smash it together with what we're talking about this morning, the great commission, you get kind of a statement that says a great church is marked by loving God, loving others, and then helping others do the same. Okay? And so that's the part we're going to talk about this morning. So Matthew 28, look with me at verse 16, as we look at what a great church is. Now, keep in mind, as we dive in here, Jesus has been crucified and he is risen from the dead. This is the resurrected Jesus talking here in this passage. So Matthew 28, verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee and to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. We'll come back to that. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority. All authority. If you, if you highlight in your Bible, highlight that. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember this, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so as we're talking, what a great church is, what a great church is marked by. I'm going to show us three things this morning that I think that this passage teaches us, that as a church, but also as individual believers who make up the body of Christ, we are to be marked by, number one, that Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the authority. Verse 18 uh, says, says, all authority has been given to me. So this church and, and, and our lives as individual followers of Jesus are marked by that. So while we have pastors and we have a staff and we have deacons and we have things like that here, ultimately, Jesus is the authority. We follow Jesus. He is the ultimate authority. The thing is, is whenever orders are given, it matters who gives the orders, right? Like, I don't take advice or orders from my three-year-old as much as he tries, <laughs> He's all the time trying to boss us and say, Dad, I'm the boss. No, son, you're still not the boss, right? But we have bosses. We have authorities in our life. Maybe it's your boss at work, or maybe it's uh, your parents. Uh, maybe it's a principal, somebody like that. But we're used to having authorities in our life. But whenever Jesus says all authority has been given to him, what does that mean? So, so I want us to look at this. Who is Jesus? 
Who is Jesus and why does he have authority? First, uh, Colossians chapter one, I think answers this for us. Uh, you can turn there or it'll be on the screen. Colossians chapter one, verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. This, this teaches us a couple big things about who Jesus is, and the first is this, that he is God. Jesus is God. He didn't just like show up on Christmas morning as a baby. He's always been. He's the second person in the Trinity that, that the Great Commission talks about here, that the, uh, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? He is God. All things are created for him and by him. Everything finds its meaning and its purpose in Jesus, right? So he's God, but also he's the head of the church. That's what it says there in verse 18. He's the head of the church. So everything that we do is guided by and determined by him, okay? So that's who Jesus is, but what did he do? And why does that matter? Why does he have all authority? Well, Philippians chapter 2 answers that for us. It says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. Verse 9 says, And it's for this reason that God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What this is telling us is that he humbled himself. He, he's before all things. He, he's always been, but he humbles himself. He puts on skin and bone, and he steps into this earth. He takes on our likeness, right? Scripture says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he steps into this earth and, and takes on our likeness, and then he willingly goes to a cross and dies a death that we deserve for our sin, right? That's what he did. That's what Philippians 2 is telling us, but now he's alive, and he's seated on the throne of heaven, so he's king, he's Lord, and then, and then it says that every knee will absolutely bow before him, right? And so what this is saying is that Jesus's authority is the basis for everything else the Great Commission tells us. His authority, it all hinges upon that. His authority over heaven and earth means that Jesus is not just our personal Lord and Savior whenever we declare him to be. Now listen, I understand what we're saying whenever we say that we've made Jesus our Lord and Savior, but listen, it doesn't even really matter what you and I say about him. He is Lord and he is King, right? And that one day every knee on heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow before him. The only question is, is when are you going to do it? Are you going to do it now while you still have time? Or are you going to do it when it's too late? But every knee will bow. Every tongue is going to confess Jesus as Lord. So it doesn't really matter what you and I say about him, right? He is king. He is Lord. All of those things, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, that he's exalted with the Father right now, all of those things are true regardless of what you and I think about that. 
right? So the, the question then really is this, what does God want for your life? The first thing he wants is, to, is for you to submit to the authority of Jesus in your life. Does Jesus have all authority in your life? I want us all to ask ourselves that question this morning, whether you've been here for one day or you've been here for 50 years, ask yourself that question. Does Jesus have all authority in my life? It's not enough to simply agree with the authority of Jesus if it's not impacting the way that you follow him. It would be absurd to call yourself a follower of Jesus if you don't actually follow the things that he says to do, right? We see this all the time. I think of, I think of college football fans who, who use a lot of we language. You know what I'm talking about? Like, wow, we played great today, or we really got to fix that, that defense, or we really beat Texas bad today, right? I got to throw that in there because I'm a Sooner fan, and I've learned that that's the one thing that we have in common, Sooners and, and Razorback fans, is we don't like Texas. But we use a lot of we language, right? And it's like, bro, you didn't do anything. You weren't on the field. Because it's very different from being in the stands versus being on the field, knowing the coach, knowing the game plan, executing, and being a part of the team. And so I want to ask us this morning, I want to encourage you to submit to Jesus as the authority of your life. And so you can do that this morning. You can submit to Jesus as the authority in your life and say, I'm, I'm going to put everything else aside and I'm going to follow after you, right? Or maybe you need to come back to him and go, I haven't been living that way, but I'm going to make Jesus the authority in my life today. And so, listen, I know that we've, we've spent a lot of time on, on this point, but the reality of the situation is this. If the Great Commission is ever going to take hold in our life, if it's ever going to make sense to us, it all hinges upon the authority of Jesus in your life. Right? So if I just stand up here and I say, go and make disciples, you're going to sit there and go, that sounds good. Probably not going to do anything with that. But if Jesus is the authority in your life, then it doesn't really matter what he says next. We do it, right? We follow the plan that he has for our lives. So a great church is, is marked by the fact that, number one, Jesus has the authority, but number two, Jesus sets the mission. So he has the authority to tell us what to do. Now's what, now what has he told us to do? Jesus sets the mission. Let's look at, at verse 19 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go. That, that word go there is present and it's active. It, it could be translated as, as you are going. As you are going, do these things. So it's not wait until you've hit a certain point in your career or, or, or your family or you've gotten married or now you're out of college or now that you have that certain economic status. It, it's not saying when you get to a certain point, then you're going to do something for Jesus. No, it's saying now. Be active. Be about these things. As you are going, do this. And, and the, the one command in here is make disciples. Make disciples. Remember, he says, go, make disciples. You may be going, what is that? What is a disciple? A disciple is anyone who is following Jesus and is continually being transformed by him. That's what a disciple is. And so he tells us to make disciples in two ways. The first is 
evangelism. And that's just a big church word that we use for sharing what you know, sharing the gospel with somebody else. I've heard evangelism described this way. It's two very nervous people talking to one another, right? Because we get freaked out by it. But we need to understand that, that it's not that scary of a thing to just talk about what you believe to be true, what you believe. And, and, and the thing about it is, is that Jesus said that his purpose in coming to this earth was to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came to this, this earth. In Luke 14, he says to go out into the alleys and the streets and, and bring in the lame and the blind. In Luke 15, uh, the Pharisees were giving Jesus a hard time about eating with tax collectors and sinners. And, and they said, uh, you know, why are you doing those things? And he responds by telling them two stories. The first is he tells a story about um, a shepherd who had a hundred sheep 99 of them were here, but one was lost, right? And you've heard this story that, that he leaves the 99 and he goes after and he finds the one that was lost. And, and then he tells us, he, he says that there was this huge celebration and, and Jesus equates that with the celebration that takes place in heaven whenever one sinner repents and turns to God. The second story was a lot like it. There was a lady who lost a coin. She had 10 coins, she lost one. She tore the whole house apart looking for the one coin. And whenever she found it, she threw this huge party, right? Jesus is telling the Pharisees then, and he's telling us now that he passionately pursues the one. He pursues the lost. And so if we wanna be like Jesus, if you wanna be near to the heart of Jesus, go find somebody who needs to hear about him and tell them all about him, right? That's what it looks like, that, that we pursue, that we seek the lost because Jesus said to. So we share the gospel because he told us to and he modeled that. But that's not all. He doesn't just say go and, and make, make converts, get people to, to, to be Christians. That's, that's not all. Then he says to teach them to follow me. So go make disciples and baptize them, which is the mark of, of a profession of faith, which just time out for a second. If you're a follower of Jesus, but you've never been baptized, we need to do that, right? I'd love to talk to you more about that this morning. That's the first command. Romans 6, 4 talks about how baptism is us identifying with the death of Jesus, that our sins have been uh, put to death, but then we also identify not only in his death, but in his resurrection as well. And Romans 6, 4 says we are now walking in newness of life. So that's what baptism is. So, so, we, so we seek and save the lost, we baptize them, but th we don't just leave them there. Then we teach them to obey everything that, that Jesus commanded. It's a word that we use called discipleship. Discipleship, and I, and I would explain that this way. It's just helping others take their next step with Jesus. What can you do to help somebody take that next step with Jesus, right? The local church is intended by God. It's designed by God to be the primary place where discipleship occurs. That's the reason why it's so important that we show up with consistency, that we're involved, that we're in a small group, right? It's so important because discipleship was designed to happen in the church. Discipling others is this. What are you learning and who are you teaching it to? What are you learning and who are you teaching it to? See, see multiplication, this, it's baked into the DNA of what it means to be a Christian. It's baked into the DNA of, of a disciple and so what can that look like for you? That, that looks a lot of ways. It could be 
a very intentional Bible study one-on-one or with a group of three to five people out of your small group. I would encourage you to do that. That's not something that we necessarily structure as a church, but we have a lot of people doing that out of our small groups that getting together for accountability and Bible study together. And that's a great thing. That, that, I would encourage you to do that. But it can also look a lot like, discipleship can look like, okay, I, I serve in this area. I serve in, in kids ministry or I serve in student ministry or I serve in the tech booth or whatever. And I wanna show you how I do it. I'd love for you to come along with me and I will show you how to do it. What are you learning and who are you teaching it to? That's discipleship. So it can look like that. It could also look like teaching somebody to share their faith at work. It can, it can look a number of different ways. The problem is, though, is that churches all across America are filled with people who have been just sitting in church for 5, 10, 20, maybe even 50 years who have never intentionally discipled anyone. Can you imagine what our churches would look like if every follower of Jesus would take this call seriously. If every believer would just intentionally disciple somebody else, our churches would be busting at the seams. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us to do. It's his plan A for the world. Jesus has told us exactly what he wants us to do. So making disciples is the call of every follower of Jesus, not just the pastors, not just the staff, not just the the all-stars in the church, whoever that might be, every single one of us making disciples. So he says, go and make disciples, and he says, of all nations. I think whenever we hear that, we we sometimes think that, I guess that means I need to like go to China or something, right? Um, But he says all nations, not just the furthest one that you can think of. Acts 1.8, Um, Jesus says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were, Judea, a little bit further, Samaria, a little further, and then he says, to the ends of the earth. And so he he wants us to make disciples both, both near and far, right? So in a very real sense, sharing the gospel with your neighbor planting a a church extension of Second Baptist in Greenbrier or going across the world are all very much the same thing. The only difference is how far you go to get there, right? That we are all called to this. So what does it look like to share Jesus, to evangelize and discipleship here? Well, it starts in your home. It starts in your home. Parents, did you know that you are the primary disciple makers of your children? That's your calling. Your primary calling as a parent is to make disciples, which is kind of scary, right? Because they they see both sides of us. (laughs) They see both church David and cranky, leave me alone David, right? But we're called to make disciples. So at home, with your family, with your relatives, also at work. God has placed you wherever you are on purpose and for a purpose. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care if you work the the drive-through at McDonald's. God has placed you there for a reason. So I would ask, are you leveraging that for the sake of the kingdom? Are you using that for the purposes that God has planted you there for? If you retire after 30 years and all you have to show for it is multiple garages and a fireplace on your back porch, you will have missed it. And hear me, I hope you have those things. Those are cool. But that's not the end goal, right? That's not the end goal. And so we're to make disciples here, at home, at work, in our neighborhoods, where we take our kids to go play ball, 
We're sharing the gospel. We're teaching people what it looks like to follow Jesus, but also not only here, but there, both near and far. So we are all called to go to the nations. And that can look different for every person. And, 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 and I want to just say, there may be some of you who you've been, you've been wrestling with this idea of God may be calling you to step out of, of your life here and go live in the nations and, and spread the gospel with some 6,000 unreached people groups today who've never even met a follower of Jesus. That could be you. God could be doing that in your life. Others of you, it, it could be, this is how you're involved in the nations, by, by praying. So we should, be, we should be praying for what's going on, for God to send messengers to, to show us how we can help. We should go, right? So I would advocate for going on short-term mission trips and, and things if, if long-term is not the calling that he's placed on you. But then also giving. So we pray, we give, and we go. Did you know that whenever you give financially of the resources that God has given you here at Second, a portion of that goes all over the world. That whenever you give a dollar here, which this isn't even a message on, on giving or tithing, all right? But I just want to put this out there for you. That whenever you do that, a portion of that is going to plant churches, send missionaries both in the United States and in other countries. It's going to Bible translations. It's going to support uh, orphans, boys and girls who, who don't have families or homes. It's going to train pastors and, and, and teachers of churches and seminary. Uh, you know, the, the hurricane is, is going to be hitting today in the, in the Gulf, and the first thing that you're going to see is the yellow shirts of Southern Baptists running in to help in those situations. So, so Southern Baptists get a bad rap in a lot of ways, and, and, and rightfully so for, for some things. But the cooperative program, whenever we link arms with other like-minded churches and say we can do so much for the sake of the kingdom and the nations together, man, that's something to be proud of. And whenever you give, you're giving to that, right? I want you to hear that, that, that if you give, you are a part of going to the nations. And so it takes all of us. We all have a part to play in going to the nations. You are called. You are called both, both here and, and there. So a great church is marked by the fact that Jesus has authority. Jesus sets the mission. But then in number three, a great church is marked by the fact that Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us. Look at verse 20. He says, remember, the New Living Translation translates that. It says, and be sure of this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so you might be sitting there going, this sounds great, but I can't do that. And I would say, yes, you can. Yes, you can, because God is with you. You are empowered by God himself. Acts 1-8, you're going to receive power whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses both here and there. What a, what a sweet promise, right? That God is with us whenever we're going, whenever we're sharing the gospel, whenever we're teaching others what it looks like to follow Christ. The presence and power of God is right there with you. This, this past week has been, uh, I mean, it's been really hard, right? In our country and uh, in our world, everything that's going on in Afghanistan right now is just absolutely 
unbelievable. And we should, church, as a church, be in prayer for, for our leaders, for our military, for those on the ground. We should be in prayer for them. But even in the midst of all of the, the darkness that has taken place, there's been some really cool stories of, of people stepping up, of heroes stepping, stepping in. I heard this week of, of some military, some, some retired military uh, people raising their own funds and going over and at night they sneak out of the airport and, and they're transporting people into the airport to take them to safety. That's unreal, right? The bravery and, and things that that takes. There's another story of, of a plane. Uh, it's called Reach 871. It's an it's a American Air Force cargo plane, a C-17. And they uh, were sent on a mission to go to Kabul and to take as many people out of there as they as they could, right? And so you may have seen this picture floating around on social media um, this week or, or last. And the, the story goes that, that they landed, one of the back doors was propped open and people just began to flood the plane. And so this skeleton crew of five American heroes had a decision to make. What do we do? And they decided we're gonna get as many people as fast as we can, and we're gonna get out of here. And whenever they landed, over 640 people stepped into safety. They didn't have time to count. They didn't have time to calculate the, wit, the weight of the plane or anything like that. They didn't take any of that into consideration. They just said, we're gonna get as many of you out of here as we possibly can. Listen, this, this world is, is dark and it is, it is messed, messed up. But God invites us in close to his side. He breathes life into our lungs. And then he gives us a purpose. And it's to amplify boldly and loudly the goodness of Jesus in a broken world so that as many people as possible can step into safety. Psalm chapter 40. The psalmist says this, I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and he heard my cry for help. And he brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and he set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. But then he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God so that many will see and fear and they will trust in the Lord. He's saying, listen, I called out to him and he heard me and he pulled me up and he set my feet on a rock. But then he didn't just plop me down in a church chair for the next 30 years. No, he put a new song in my mouth. He put a new song in my mouth so that many will see and trust in the Lord. Friends, we are saved and then we are sent with a new song in our mouth so that the world can hear, so that the world can step into safety. And so that's the kind of church that we are to be. That's the kind of church that we are to be. My question for us as individuals who make up the body of believers here at 2600 Dave Ward Drive is are you in? Are you in? Look at verse 17 of, of the Great Commission. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Some worshiped, some were all in, but some doubted, some were unsure. Eugene Peterson translates that verse this way to say, the moment they saw him, they worshiped him. Some though held back not sure about risking themselves totally. 
thing about it is, is Psalm 46.10, God says this, I will be exalted among the nations. I will. It's a promise. So really, it doesn't matter if I quit or if I give up. The mission still succeeds. The mission still succeeds. And so really, the Great Commission is this. It's the great invitation to step in alongside what God is doing, to be a part of the nations crying out and exalting God. And so I'll ask you again, are you in? Are you in? Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.